Brett, welcome to Empires of the Future. We're back together again. We are still on lockdown here in Indiana, hoping we're going to get out of it soon. Today, we're looking to talk about uh, college layoffs, border closings, and other ongoing changes caused uh, by COVID-19, as well as the first ever Empires of the Future debate. And it yes. ought to be lively. Yes. Uh, we're going to have a friendly debate about whether or not we ought to bother getting dressed when we are working from home, so that, that that's going to be fun. Do, do you have a dress code at, uh, at at work right now? You know, youth guys are notorious for, <laughs> <laughs> and I can tell you, I've been an offender of dress codes at various times in the past. I'll, I'll tell that story. Um, so there's not uh, a dress code at First Southern. I'll just call it general intimidation. <laughs> so. So, uh, no, and there's certainly not an office dress code. What do you guys do? You got uh, I, well, I would, I would like for there to be a dress code. <laughs> <laughs> but I haven't gotten there yet. We haven't gotten there yet. Well, running a church plant, man, it's hard stuff. Yeah. so many priorities. Yeah, yeah. So you would like to be able to install the suit-only rule, but this doesn't seem right yet. Right, yeah. <laughs> not quite there. Not know? quite yet. So. <laughs> All right, um... So the first section we wanted, um, yeah, I think it's good right now. We are, we are all in our minds thinking about a new normal. And uh, certain things are not going to come up to speed very quickly. And there are certain things that we know. And so uh, we wanted to look at a few of those things. I, I had thought, from what I had gathered before reading this article uh, that you sent me. So we read this article uh, by Douglas Belkin and Melissa Korn. What, uh, what was it in? Wall Public Street Journal. Publication? Okay. Yeah, Wall Street Journal. Uh, and, and I had assumed that colleges were going to go ahead and have uh, people on campus come fall in general. Mm -hmm. Apparently that's still debated it is, uh, right yeah. now. They're talking fall and might be January. Right. So right out of the gates, then you're talking, we've already lost a lot of revenue. Uh, mm -hmm. Colleges have already lost a lot of revenue. Mm -hmm. And... Um, Large institutions are very, very uh, vulnerable when they lose, say, three months. I mean, you can't just make up uh, three months of loss of funds like this. And so uh, a greater loss would be uh, really serious. And the issue is the nature of the college itself. You're talking a lot of people in comparatively close quarters. It's not as if any college has just spacious uh, areas where young people and people in general are never close together. Mm -hmm. And that's what you need. I mean, mm -hmm. that's what you need right now. And so mm -hmm. you're just looking at a situation where people would uh, infect each other and, and, and impact each other really quickly. And so they can't adjust that easily, and especially depending on how quick the spread comes. Um, that's that is the concern right now. Um, so there's a big question. I thought the uh, when I read this article, it's kind of towards the middle of the article. Uh, basically, the, these uh, professors from Cornell are writing this paper on how closely students interwine or connect with right. one another. I thought it was fascinating. Um, so the way that they've studied, they said that... Um, uh, I'm going to just read this. It says, using college en enrollment data, they found that during a given week, the average student shares a class with more than 500 other students, mm -hmm. so 4% of the student body. But 87% of students are connected through two steps. Right. 87%. And 98% are three steps removed via shared classmates. Uh -huh. Keeping classes smaller slows the spread, they found, but only slightly. So, And you've got a 13% and a 2% there. And I'm looking at you, all my loners, all my people who live in your dorm room and don't come out. Yeah. Who, I mean, like, these are folks that are wearing gloves, I guess, and, and masks wherever they go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Space suits. That, basically, you're just talking, like, everybody's going to get everything that everybody else has. You know, uh, one day, who knows when we stand before the Lord and after we... we 
talk through our lives and all of this, we might get to know mysteries about like, hey, watch this flu just go through this campus in like one day. Every single person on it gets it. Everybody gets it. Because that's what they're concerned about right now, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, the, the, I know we're going to talk about the just, the big decisions that colleges have to make when it comes to how do we even do um, dorm rooms, how do we do uh, right. food distribution, right. how do we do classes, all these are issues they have to dis- discuss. But whatever decision they make, there is going to be a potential huge revenue consequence. Yes. Uh, I, in the article, they said that California Berkeley, which is a pretty prominent university in our country, uh, that they've already they've already had a two hundred million hit from lost revenue and right. additional expenses. Yeah, and I believe they said that their um, annual budget is like three billion. Yep, you got it. Uh, so now they probably mostly have a pretty large endowment, right? Which is based in endowment as reserve funds. Uh, it's famous that Harvard and Princeton, all the Ivy League schools, because a lot of their alumni tend to be millionaires and things like that that they it's a great way for millionaires right. to I give mean, money right it's off. tax write off mm-hmm. so you have these universities with humongous amounts of endowment actually one piece of controversy this week was is that Harvard got some of the the stimulus money mm-hmm. And there's a lot of uh, Trump had basically came out and said that they should give that money back mm-hmm. because they have this huge endowment. Right. Well, based off that controversy, I read it this morning. Harvard has given the money back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, it, it's been fu- one comment I read once is that Princeton was this massive endowment could basically build a building of pure gold. <laughs> oh my <goodness. laughs> That the toilets could be gold, See, everything could be gold, and they could afford it. <laughs> these are the kind of stats I can get behind. Yeah. Okay. These are these stats. I think they don't lie, you know. I mean, right. those are stats that everybody needs to know about <laughs> in the world. Wow. Um, so yeah, I mean, Berkeley probably is getting a huge hit, but they yep. do have probably several billion dollars in, in endowment and in, in money that they have stored away. Right. Um, because you'll never—it's very similar to a church, right? But rarely does if someone gives them a, a check or a donation, or they're going to go. You know what? To be honest, we really don't need it. Right, right, right. <laughs> Who's going to do that? No, that's not. Uh, there's a funny story that Stanford, happen. someone gave like millions of dollars to Stanford, um, and the president basically goes, well, we really don't need the money, but they're not going to give it back. Yeah. And they decide, well, I guess we could like build a new biology program or something. Right. Something like they didn't really had plans to do. Maybe it was like in a, in a shelf somewhere in a drawer. They kind of like decided to pull it out because it's like, oh my God, it's money that we don't really need, but we're not giving it back. Right. So it's, it's fascinating were a university arts. Now, some universities, like, like more private universities that aren't don't have a huge alumni base or a huge endowment, probably are good, are hurting and may have to close. Right. So because of massive budget cuts that they're having to make because more expenses. And I'm not really sure, uh, and I don't know if the article gets into it, what other reasons for the lost revenue. Um, I'm not sure if you caught that in the article. I've read somewhere else. Where, like, where, where are they losing the 200 million dollars? Is that purely because, because obviously students already paid for the classes. Right. Uh, is that money they had to pay back for like um, dorms type so, stuff? Yeah, you're yeah. losing all, all tuition. Um, I'm sorry, you don't lose tuition, but you're losing uh, fees, any kinds of. Uh, as soon as students leave, you know, a dorm, presumptively they're not paying for it right. anymore, and. The issue, I mean, you know, as uh, as a church that recently purchased a building, that uh, buildings cost money every week, whether people are using them or not. Right. Uh, and that's a thing that for years I didn't understand mm-hmm. in church work. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things going on in churches right now is the, the story in the 90s was if you build it, they will come. And yeah. so many churches built very large buildings right. and had plans to use those buildings basically for the first season. Mm. And if you didn't have consistently excited people who came and made a new plan for the next season, well, then that building sits empty a lot of the time. And here's right. the thing, even if that building is sitting empty all the time, you're paying. Mm. You're paying insurance, you're paying heating and uh, cooling bills, you're paying for electricity, you know, all of this stuff. And, and schools have the same situation. Um, so, yeah, I would guess it comes um, mostly because... Students are not uh, paying for housing. I do know, though, that some students have gone ahead and dropped classes mm-hmm. uh, rather than, you know, bra- it, and it is a thing to brave this transition, you know, to re- just take off a week or two and then start receiving emails and, and go, well, I'll get you lectures here and there. I mean, nobody was ready for this. Mm-hmm. And so it's been a, 
um, I'm sure it's been a challenge uh, for everyone who is attempting to make that transition because as somebody who uh, did a fair amount of seminary through distance education, uh, had an online class every semester other than when I lived on campus, um, it's very different. It's, it requires a certain kind of self-discipline to yeah. just sit down and go, I will, I will teach this to myself. I will listen to the lecture. I will make sure I bear down and figure out the things that I don't understand. I mean, some classes being more difficult than others. I, I did Hebrew online. You want to talk about just feeling like you're getting punched in the gut right. for, you know, about eight hours a day couple days a week there that yeah. was my life yeah. for a couple years yeah. just like every Tuesday and Thursday I just wake up and I go well for the next you know, honestly eight nine hours I'm doing nothing but trying to force this stuff into my head and I don't even know how to pronounce it I don't know how to read it but I'm I'm trying you know yeah. I'm trying to put it together and it so is, it's it a, challenge is, it is a, cha- a challenging tradition because you know I know you went to a smaller college right mm-hmm. I went to a big state college with the University of Tennessee in Knoxville Tennessee and um, even we went to we go to campus every fall we go back and um, my wife plays in the in the alumni marching band for homecoming mm-hmm. um, and we walk on campus and the campus is completely different right built new buildings have been been built new dormitories have been built been things have been renovated right. and, and new landscaping projects and all these things and they're building it they're building these new buildings for recruiting new students, right? And, and the idea that they're going to have thirty to 40,000 students living and, 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 and doing things on campus, and they need these state-of-the-art buildings and right. state-of-the-art facilities to... Right. They built a massively new uni- uh, university center with a Chick-fil-A and, and a Starbucks. Mm-hmm. And it's beautiful, right? All the glass and things like that. And they just finished it within the last year or two. Well, what's going to happen come September... You know, most likely, uh, either by decree or by just fear, there's just not going to be very many students in these beautiful buildings, right? Um, and a lot of those buildings probably haven't been paid for, right? Um, and so it's based off projections of how many students enrollments in the past and how the enrollment is growing, okay. and they do all these pretty fancy projections, and now those projections have been pretty much destroyed. Right. Um, so it'll be interesting, and as this article talks about, and I've read about this in the in the past, um, I think starting in like the 1970s and 1980s, state governments stopped giving as much money to state universities, mm-hmm. public universities. So that's why tuition has gone up. And people ask, like, well, why is tuition, tuition go up? Well, it's because uh, Nashville or Indianapolis isn't giving as much money to their state right. universities, and so they're uh, supplementing that lack of state funds with tuition hikes. And that's just the way it works. And so it's not like tomorrow uh, for IU or for USI or whatever other public school in Indiana, the state decides, okay, because of the lost revenue, we're going to start giving. And that's not happening. Right. That's not happening. That's They're never going to go back to state funding for a major parts of, of universities' budget. So um, it'll be interesting to see how universities adjust uh, to this new normal, right. you know, if more students are going to take online classes. Well, I don't think you need as many professors, and you definitely don't need as many classrooms, and right. you definitely don't need as many dorm rooms. Well, the problem is uh, you really would need, if uh, it's kind of a simple math equation, if you're thinking that probably on average before students would have two feet of space, mm-hmm. maybe even less if you're in a lecture hall, you'd have six inches of space, Um well, if you're going to go, let's, let's just use the two feet. If you're going to go to two feet to the prescribed six feet of distance, well, then you need three times as much classroom space. And they're not, not going to do that. Um, and so you're in this really tough spot. And USI is a great example of what you were just talking about, having built in the last couple of years the sports complex, the mm-hmm. new sports complex, as well as a new visitor center, which is purely there for the purpose of when people come in, we want to make an impression. Exactly. And that was built for that. And as soon as it's completed, I mean, how many times have you walked by it and it hasn't even hardly been open yet right. and now it's completed and it's like, yeah, yeah I guess what? We don't know yeah. if we're going to 
having more students come in this year. Right. Uh, that's not the plan. These things are built because they go, if we do this, this is an encouragement to every student who comes in here. Go, wow, this is kind of this is a great place to be. Yeah. Look how look how impressive, how beautiful. Yeah. Um, and they're not getting those right now, and that's that right. wasn't part of the plan. There's actually a number out there, and I don't have the number on the top of my head, but it's a pretty big number of how much money is spent by university to recruit a recruit one student. Right. It's quite high. Right. Um, there's and a how reason. How much money each one student might yeah, bring too. It's, it's just exactly. A, it's, yeah. And it's a, it's a math thing. It's a mm-hmm. business strategy. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why um, universities are putting Chick-fil-A's in. There's a reason right. why they're putting in Starbucks is because it, it creates an environment that students want. Oh, well, that's great. There's a Starbucks in the library. How wonderful. Uh, it creates this when they do those kind of walkthroughs with the parents and yep. they show them all Look these highlights. Yep. This is a recruiting thing. Yep. And um, and so that's that's what's kind of going on here. Um, and if students are like, well, because of COVID-19 or parents are going because of COVID-19, I don't know if I want to send my student to a big university living on campus when they can just simply take classes online. Right. And yeah. it's going to create a, an interesting... Dy- no, I know if it was me and I was given the option, I would rather go to campus mm-hmm. uh, than sit at my home and do online classes. Because online classes are difficult. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to motivate yourself, and you don't get that college right. experience. It feels like you're basically doing night school, right. or you're, you're basically back at high school. Am I sleeping in my parents' basement, or am I at college? I think I'm both. I think, yeah, <laughs> it yeah. doesn't feel great. It doesn't feel great. Uh, so yeah. Um, so it'll it'll be interesting. I think a lot of parents will make a lot of the decisions on some of these because a lot of you know well, if, sure. either they're, they're going to be paying yep. funding it, or students are going to make their own decisions based off if they're going to have to pay their own loans. They may go, well, I can go this option, which is cheaper. Sure. And I'll In just this choose time, this. You know, it's like um, it's like so many other things that this is a factor that that kind of factors in as a negative in terms of being on campus. And so, you know, it might be uh, everybody's going to make their own decision. Um, you know, it depends on whether or not you are confident in your ability to be proactive about how you, you know, how often you wash your hands and uh, how much you are concerned about picking up something like uh, any kind of disease. Um, but that's a decision facing a lot of students. As far as the landscape, um, it, it, certainties are that uh, older professors, people who are at risk, uh, will likely still teach remotely no matter what. Just it's, uh, in, for the time being, that, that makes complete sense. Mm. Uh, like I mentioned, the students will sit separated uh, by something like three or four chairs. Uh, I saw that Mitch Daniels over at Purdue had this this number where I am on the other side of this. He he uh, he said that they want to focus on um, separating into two different populations. That 35 and under is a population uh, that is kind of less at mm-hmm. risk in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then 35 and older, you just want to cordon off these people. You know, and uh, and so there you go. Uh, but that's a, that's a dividing line. I hadn't heard anything about that before I read this. But the issue really is that, in general, I mean, there are these odd cases, but in general, the young are not affected too badly right. by uh, right. COVID nineteen. Uh, but meanwhile, anyone who has some kind of especially respiratory problem is at a high risk uh, mm-hmm. for this and so uh, that's that's kind of one of their uh, strategies in addition to everybody's talking about I mean I'll tell you what if you have uh, any background in cleaning and being a custodian uh, they're going to be hiring they're going to be in high demand uh, for custodial work disinfecting doorknobs I mean you're going to see I expect for the foreseeable future, we're going to see plenty of people walking around behind people, just wiping doorknobs, yeah. any, anything that people regularly touch and interact with. I feel like a university, too, you know, when Virginia Tech, the, the shooting at Virginia Tech happened, right, uh, when was that, mid-2000s maybe, uh, the, the thing was, how can you secure a university right. that's... You know, again, I went to University of Tennessee. We had an ad campus, an agricultural campus, which was further off 
from the regular campus, and it took 20 minutes to walk from one end to the other, right? That's why there was a bus service that ran right through. So you have massive universities. How can you secure people bringing weapons onto the campus and shooting up a building? It's almost impossible, right? Now it's like, how do you keep clean Mm -hmm. a campus of multiple buildings, multiple doors, multiple classrooms? If you're having to have someone who's basically... Uh, basically is, is uh, you have this whole wing of the building, so every time there's a class, clean the door for the, the new class coming in or making sure the bathroom doors are always cleaned. Or, that's just going to be crazy trying to keep that on, on lockdown and secure. And you know if, uh, if there's an outbreak on a campus, good luck surviving that, right? I mean, if there's like, you know, come like October, November or whatever, there's an outbreak of COVID-19 on USI's campus, right, where multiple people are affected. That university's dead, right? Everybody's going to pick it up. Everyone's uh, going to pick it up. And then the, 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 the PR from that would be impossible to, you to know, stop. And, and, yeah, and, and those are things that I, I do think we should probably be preparing ourselves mm-hmm. for now that um, places that are uh, close quarters are are going to be a, a place where the virus will spread just like every other virus spreads in these close quarters. And so we are going to, uh, I, I, my guess right now for most colleges is that they'll have some sort of reduced fall mm-hmm. um, because it, it seems to me that after the stay-at-home order that mostly what we're talking about is like a controlled release mm-hmm. that – we just have to figure out how to deal with the fact that this virus is here now. Yeah. And we can't walk around going, okay, we're going to try to make sure nobody gets the flu virus. Like, look, people are going to get it. Right. It's going to get around. Right. Um, we want to develop effective treatments. We don't want to overload the healthcare system, but we have to live. And so that's what we're dealing with right now. And so whether our college campuses fill up this fall or by the way, January would mean you are in the middle of uh, the cold season uh, where you're talking about people are inside more, in closer quarters more. Yeah. During the during here, the spring and the summer and the fall, you can be outside more, which outside is a, is a game changer for this. You have space. I mean, during the fall semester, teachers could walk outside and have a lecture sitting on in an open, you know, little part of campus that's not right. the case in january right you can't <laughs> do that in january. At all. You're, you're talking about enclosed spaces so there's this is the thing we live in this inconvenient world where we would like to have per- perfect conditions but we don't have those and so yeah. uh, doing it, our best and yeah. rolling with the punches i you know i know we need to we need to move on but you know for someone who who wrote a 260 page dissertation on college I feel like I wish I could go back and rewrite some things because I think what we knew about college and college ministry uh, two months ago may be completely different mm-hmm. come fall. Um, and that's the question I've, I'm asking myself is what will the fall look like? What will ministry look like? Not only on the short term, but in the long term as well. Um, and I think probably if I can kind of do some forward thinking already, uh, ministries, either it be church-related college ministries or parachurch ministries, are going to have to use, are going to have to rely on students more to be kind of surrogates. Mm-hmm. No longer are staff going to be able just to kind of walk on waltz on campus and do whatever they want. I think there's going to be restrictions about who can be on campus and what they can do, um, like you know being being able to give out a bunch of food. Like that's probably gone, right? I mean, the likelihood that's probably not going to happen in the short term, maybe even the long term. So um, it'll just be fascinating to see um, how ministry changes, um, what God does in the in the midst of the change, and yeah. so it is kind of a an exciting time because most likely what we knew in the past will not be what we will experience in the future. Right. So, um, in the meantime, before we do uh, leave this, kind of hit home uh, for us this week that uh, some professors were let go uh, from. Southern Seminary, uh, where we both graduated with NIMDiv, and then just recently you with your yeah. doctor in missiology, um, and and honestly, one of uh, my favorite professors uh, was let go, Ted Cable, yeah, uh, who is a philosophy apologetics professor, 
uh, great guy, a winsome oh, yeah. personality, vibrant, yes. uh, really, and and, and very loved cool. baseball. Oh, huge okay. Texas Rangers fan. I could, he's from Texas. Yep, yes. yep, yep. He's a huge Texas Rangers fan. So I was remember I was in his one of his classes, and the Rangers had made the World Series, uh, and they ended up losing. Uh, I don't know if it's to the Phillies or I couldn't remember exactly, but uh, but yeah, it's like uh, remember he was a he was a very eclectic guy. Loved rock and roll, but I don't know if you knew this, but was a really good guitar player. Oh, yeah, I went to church where... Ninth and out, right? Plays, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I've talked to Rich Mullins with him because he's a pretty big Rich Mullins fan. Okay. He's a very good guitar player as well. Yeah, and he's kind of one of like a renaissance guy, man. He's like, he's like he's the Christian hippie guy, right? Yeah. Which he yeah. actually became, got saved like with the Jesus people yes. movement yes. stuff. So like he fits like the Christian hippie. Yeah. And so he becomes a seminary professor and becomes a philosophy and apologetics professor. It, he just kind of fits the, right. the bill pretty well. Right. Yeah, we, and a couple of these guys that both of us were familiar with, and, and these guys have stories. You know, uh, Dr. Fuller, Russell Fuller, yeah. was also let go, and he's more of kind of a drill sergeant sort of personality. He's Didn't a, have him, that's what I've heard. Old Testament and Hebrew professor. I had him for Old Testament. I did I did not take him for Hebrew because everybody's scared <laughs> to death of him. There's few yes. Hebrew professors that everybody's scared to death of him. He's the one that would put, uh, have everybody in the class stand, and you would be writing your Hebrew sentences, and he would just, in front of everybody, just correct you, and, and uh, tough guy, very good teacher. I appreciate him very much in my Old Testament class. Um, so there are questions right now about all the story behind this, but uh, what I understand for certain is, I mean, they, they, they cut budget. 30%. Budget 30%. Yeah. And, you know, the, the statement I saw released by Dr. Cable is, you know, he appreciates the school, he understands no ill will, and I... I mean, he's one of the editors on the Apologetic Study Bible. He is. Um, he, he'll land somewhere, and whoever oh, yeah. gets him uh, will be blessed yeah. to have. I feel the same for Dr. Fuller, and I'm sure. I don't know uh, the, the others who were released yeah. as well, but uh, Dr. Fuller is a very capable uh, professor, uh, very skilled in his field. Yeah. And so, I mean, he wrote the book on Hebrew grammar, and people use his book not only in seminaries, but even in... Harvard, Yale-type levels, people use his stuff. And right, so, that was a big emphasis while I was at the seminary, that the professors would write their own books. I knew he did. Dr. Garrett, who I had for Hebrew, wrote his own as well. And, and you know, I mean, like, you've written the dissertation now. To, yeah. To write a textbook yeah. is yeah. so much work. Yeah. <laughs> so unbelievably much work. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, and there's a lot of, like, stories going around about why they were fired uh, or laid off is the better term the more proper term, um, and some have used it as as kind of context for arguing that they were conservative and Dr. Mueller, well, and so and the, the, is... the seminary has gone progressively liberal because of social justice type stuff, and that's why they were let go, because I guess Fuller was the only professor that signed the Dallas Statement of Social Justice, which I'm, I've not read, to be honest right. with you, and uh, obviously Dr. Mueller disagreed with the statement and didn't want his faculty to sign it um but they said that was like kind of the the reason why he was fired and others were fired but uh, dr cable came out and said that is false and, right. and not true um and uh anyways it, it's it's created a really interesting um i don't really want to get too much into this unless you want to but because i don't really, don't really understand as much but there are some there's a group out there that really do not does not like Dr. Moeller doesn't like Southern, sees it going in a, a direction that they disagree with, uh, I guess embracing social justice or liberal type uh, views on some things. And um, and so it's just been an interesting, like, uh, there's a camp out there, and I didn't even know it really existed, but once this came out, they really kind of bit into it pretty hard. Well, and only in our current climate can you have, within a span of two weeks, that last week, uh, you know, fairly surprising kind of uh, ask anything from Dr. Mueller. He uh, said that he was going to vote for Donald Trump, and that's last week. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but then this right. week, uh, he and the seminary are accused of uh, going off the rails uh, in terms of uh, some sort of liberal takeover. And, you know, I, as far as I can tell, you and I are both in a position to go, I don't. I don't see enough to make right. me right. buy any of that. But, guys, we, in the span of two weeks, we have made 
I mean, it was in the Washington Post last week. Uh, it's a surprise that Dr. Mueller came out and said he was going to vote for Donald Trump. And then this week we're talking about how apparently there's simultaneously uh, the president say, saying he's going to vote for the Republican incumbent uh, president. And then also simultaneously there's a liberal takeover, which is not possible. Yeah, it's, it's like two separate, <laughs> separate things. And a big surprise that a... Uh, Southern Baptist uh, seminary president decides that he's going to vote for Republican. Like that's not really like earth shattering, right? I mean, sh- I realize it's strange. It's strange. There, there are questions. Yeah, and and so. I realized in 2016 that was like a you know that was what was going on, and um, I just it's it's weird because I think we live in the social media world. Where every every event, every decision that's made yeah. by leaders. Is micro analyzed. Oh, yeah. um, it is not a part of any of other the other events. In no, it's its own thing, and it right. could mean any number of anything. Just ask yeah. Twitter; they could tell you the five thousand different meanings to any one event. Yeah, and that's that's just mind blowing, and 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 it just makes you it, it threatens to make you lose your mind to to try to get too far into yeah. seeing what and you know you don't know these people, so you're looking at this going, do you really think this? Are you okay? Um, I, and I want to you know if people are interested in kind of like. How should we as churches talk about politics? And if someone, say, for example, someone in your church came out and said, you know what, I'm going to vote for, Bur- for, for Joe Biden. Right. People can analyze that in two different ways. They can go, how could you vote for a Democrat? Or they can go, well, yeah, because that, that anti-Trump sentiment. And you tend to get that in maybe even, even in some of the Baptist churches, you get these kind of two sentiments. But uh, Jonathan Lehman's book, uh, he he talks about I I can't remember the name of the, of the title right now but he talks about um, the raging of kind of the nation within and politics within the church and he said in a in a kind of breakout session at together for the gospel lot not this this year obviously but last okay. two years ago that people make individual when they make political decisions like that it's very complicated yep. so even. Dr. Moeller, who's smarter than we are, has read more books, he's still a human, and he's still making a complicated decision where I don't think he woke up one morning and said, yeah, I think I'm going to vote for Trump. That's just not how he works. He's too thoughtful. He's too he's too analytical to do that. So uh, this idea that he just kind of like spur of the moment, I think I'm just going to vote for Trump, is, I think, not understanding Al Moeller at all in the way that he typically does things. And so... Someone who's such a student of history and leadership, um, him saying that took some thought. And so I think too often people don't, don't treat it as such. They treat it like, wow, yeah, he just woke up one morning and said, yeah, I think I'm just going to do this. Yeah. Just at a, beer, a pure gut. And I just don't think that's the way we should treat that, or, or uh, including this right here, the firing of or the laying off of poor right. professors. That, right. Oh, that's just a gut. Like I, these guys are too conservative, and we're gonna let them go. It's just more to it than that, right? And, and I mean, I, the only other thing I can say on that is that um, be, having lived on campus there, um, it's not as if the the professors that have been named are are all in this sort of like guild or some not at all these guys have i can guarantee you different views politically mm-hmm. they are not, these are not uh, guys that are just oh yeah this is this is the super conservative cohort that they surely wanted to get rid of no right no. like you said dr cable came through uh, the jesus movement and if you get to know him he he still has some of that vibe about him and and it's not as if uh, you know Every one of these professors was just like, oh, you know, those were the most Republican died in the wool professors that no, that is not the case at all. And so I can speak to that. These these guys have different political views. As, as there are different political views and, and positions represented at the seminary. There were before the there still are. There still are these guys leaving. And so that's not uh, a concern that I have personally. Right, right. It is it is sad. We both again went to school there. Uh, I just finished the second degree from there, and um, I think that was probably even more the core of my upset. Is you know, I, I had three classes with Dr. Cable, and uh, he actually, uh, the first year that I was uh, working with the BCM here at, at USI, he was our fall retreat speaker. Mm-hmm. And so um, he came up and, and spoke um, on like three different talks on over two days. Mm-hmm. And so I really, he was the only professor that invited me to his home. 
Mm-hmm. So there's something to yeah, that. Yeah. And so he is, he will be missed yeah. by not only the community, but by students. Uh, he's, he, yeah, anyways. I believe he worked with Crew before, didn't he? Or I know Dr. Allison did, uh, but I'm not really sure about Dr. Cable. Yeah. Well, let's talk about this. Um, we, as many have heard, uh, President announced uh, procedures to close the borders consistently for the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. Um, did you know before reading this that before 1914 you could travel the world without a passport? I didn't know that. I did not know that. Yeah, that was a very interesting point that really World War One kind of yeah. really restricted things. But then things kind of opened back up. You know, I guess in the 50s and the 60s and things, mm-hmm. but now things have come back to, obviously after 9-11, things contracted a little bit, yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, definitely now it's going to be much harder to get around. Even more so, yeah. yeah. I, uh, he opens this story, uh, this is by Yaroslav Trofimov, uh, World nice. Hardening Borders, yeah. and he opens the story talking about how... Uh, you could travel. Uh, he, he knew a man who traveled to uh, the United States, uh, I think through Britain to India, and never had a passport. Never had a passport. I mean, just, you know, I mean, they probably just swam there. They yeah. Probably just, it's like, hey, I'm here now, you know. Um, <laughs> and that's just so wild to think about. Now, the converse of, of that is uh, you wonder about, you know, uh, some killer who just went over to Ukraine or India, Pakistan, and killed a few people, got on a plane, it's like, yeah, you're never going to find that guy. Yeah, sure, I mean, sure. There certainly were some downsides to this, but um, my, my big concern, and think about this in the macro, in the big scale, is that I, I don't want us to go from a world where it used to be you could go places and do things, you know, and, and there are, uh, certainly this seems to be the big concern in, in uh, books like 1984 and uh, Brave New World, that, that safetyism well, are we just going to inexorably walk towards a place where it's like, look, guys, the safest thing is for you to never leave your house. Yeah. You know, never leave, especially never leave your county or your mm-hmm. state or your country. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and safety is not the only concern. Um, and, I, and so I don't want to end up there. And, and for that reason, I think it is wonderful to just think about uh, a world like this where you could travel around uh, that level of freedom, if nothing else, point that part of your heart towards the kingdom. Look forward to a day when we will travel and we will move and go and I won't have to worry about people killing each other in India or anywhere. Um, mm-hmm. uh, because that's, I think, what our heart is after when we think about that level of freedom. It's it's pretty shocking to think, though, like, by the way, that level of freedom has already existed in this world. Yeah. And um, that there was that time period where the technology had gotten to the point that, that travel was pretty expedient and the restrictions were not there yet uh, to live through that time. You know, adventures, there, there were adventures to be had, as there still are now. Uh, it's just, that's pretty wild to think about. I have some, I have some great stories. Uh, of course, you know, in, if you're a European citizen, it's like a pa- passport-free mm-hmm. zone, right? I mean, you can the travel amongst, amongst the EU countries quite freely. Uh, and, you know, hopefully that will continue to be a thing, you know. Um, but when you're an American and you're going off and you know, I've traveled to a lot of places in Southeast Asia and uh, Europe and things like that, uh, you know, having that passport like is like your ticket to anywhere, right? And I always, me and my, my dad's been everywhere now because he's, you know, worked in Southeast Asia and, and we'd always kind of look at his, his book, right, and see where he's been. And he always wanted the stamps, man. Like going to a country and getting a stamp was almost like m- worth more than money. Like it was just so cool, right? Um, and... Uh, and so, what, and I won't go too long with this, but I traveled by train, uh, kind of the Ottoman, you know, like if you watch the movie, um, uh, what's the, a Murder on the Orient Express? Mm-hmm. Well, I've been on that train, like, you know, the train from Eastern Europe to Turkey. Wow. So I've been on that train because I, I took a train ride, an overnight train ride from Athens all the way up to Istanbul. Wow. And uh, in the middle of the night, uh, you cross the border into Turkey, right? And the Greeks and the Turks don't like each other, right? They have a, uh, they have a conflict. If you don't, politically, Cyprus the, the alien is separated between the Turks and the Greeks. And they almost have a kind of like a Berlin Wall type thing going on. 
And so they're not favorable. I mean, this goes back into history, the Ottoman Empire. You know, this is yeah. a part of – people think, well, things that happened hundreds of years ago don't matter today. Yeah. You have little yeah. little understanding of history. These these things, these, these hatreds are generationally passed. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so when you cross the border from Greece into Turkey, you have to get a, a visa. And so they drag you off the tra- drag you off the tram. I make it sound like it's worse than it was. But you have to get off the train in the middle of the night because it was in the middle of the night. And they wake you up. You get off the train. You go to this little little room with like one little light bulb, right? And you go in and, and you get your your visa. You pay for your visa, right? And then um, you get it within your passport book, and then you get back on the train. Um, and this is kind of the world when you, people think about having to have a passport and having to have a visa. To, this is this is how it works, you know, where if you want access into the country, even if you're just going to Istanbul to see the sites, mm-hmm. you have to go to a dude or a lady, and she's gotta, you got to pay them the money for the visa, and they got to stamp it, and they look at you, think, treating you almost like you're, they suspect that, hey, I don't know what this guy wants to do, why he wants to come into this country, and so we're going to give you kind of the evil eye, but then we're going to give you the visa, we're going to stamp your book, and we'll let you in our country. Like, this is kind of how the world works in a lot of parts of the world, and it may become a thing, even if you're taking a flight from L.A., or taking a flight from New York to London. It may be the future as they go, oh, I don't know, does he have COVID-19? Does he have a virus? What right. does he, like, that may be the world that we may enter into. And it's uncomfortable. Like going through a, a line either for visa or passport, even if you're in the United States, um, especially if you're a foreigner going into another country, mm-hmm. it is not like fun and games. It's not balloons. It's not like they're putting the Hawaiian lace over your shoulder. Like, welcome to our country. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a sense of skepticism. There's a sense of like you kind of get the evil eye. Yeah. And uh, it's going to become even worse right. going forward. And yeah. someone who yeah. travels a lot and likes to travel a lot, mm-hmm. um, you know, I've already talked about me and my wife going over to Europe at some point. Like, that's probably not going to stop me from traveling, mm-hmm. but it's not enjoyable and it's not comforting. Yeah. You don't look forward to it. And it will probably stop some people mm-hmm. from traveling overseas or possibly if you go to a, a theme park or a place that's a huge tourist attraction in the United States and there's a lot of foreign people there, you're probably going to be a little more uncomfortable, a little annoyed, more irritable, yeah. and less welcoming and loving to foreigners, right? Yeah. That may yeah. be the the consequence of this, and that's unfortunate, especially as Christians and who are about sharing the gospel with the nations, right. who go to the nations, who want the nations to come to us. Um, this is going to make it dip more harder for us to maybe do that, yeah. but it's something we're going to definitely push the wall against and, you know, have to brace whatever... Uh, inflexibilities or difficulties we have to face to go bring the gospel to the yeah. nation. So, and it, unfortunately, it uh, reinforces a natural sort of um, kind of animosity that can already be there. I, I read a book uh, by Jonathan Haidt, who I've mentioned uh, a couple of times on the podcast. Uh, but one of the sort of uh, kind of in the righteous mind, he talks about different frameworks for how morality works. And one of the frameworks that's very memorable, he talks about this is a, this is a kind of an Eastern proverb, uh, me against my brother, me and my brother against our cousin, me and my brother and cousin against the stranger. Right. That there, there are kind of spheres of uh, intimacy and connection that, uh, and, and it's, it's amazing because this proverb, all of us immediately understand and resonate with it as uh having family and then fighting with family, but you fight with your family in a different way that you fight with the kid down the street. This is, this is tribe morality. Growing up as kids, you, you experience these sort of things. Uh, but we have a mistrust of people who are not like us. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's a natural sort of thing. And we can even find, you know, as Christians, we go, well, I have to be careful because everything that's natural is not godly. And so which, which impulse is then to, uh, to take captive and realize our sin uh, but this is another unfortunate sort of uh, hurdle and barrier to right. to coming into an understanding with people, to even re- being received. Um, people yeah. who want to overcome it will overcome it, but unfortunately, it will be a hurdle, especially uh, depending on your level of you know fear mm-hmm. and uh, susceptibility to certain diseases, but. Yeah, so that's a that's a struggle. And I'm such a, I find this article so interesting because like I am such a globalist mm-hmm. 
by um, political philosophy. I'm a, uh, even when it comes to like uh, Christian philosophy and practice and the, the, the importance of the church, not only giving money to global missions, but also going to global missions, that your church needs to have a global mindedness. Like, I'm, I think if you wanted to like kind of get my kind of my political views or philosophy of thought, it would be our theme would be globalism. Um, and uh, I'm not one of those like close the border right. Republicans or like, you know, send the factory, bring the factories back home. Like I'm just kind of the opposite of that, like free trade, globalism, country that, you know, multinational corporations are not bad. It's good. So that's kind of my, my stick. But, uh, and so I find this uh, concerning because uh, if that affects globalism and kind of the, our cities and our communities becoming more global, uh, that I think that is a is something that is not a good thing. Like it's it, it was great when I went back home where I went to high school in Cairoville, Tennessee, uh, several years ago because my parents had moved back and there were so many people who worked for FedEx that were, were from India mm-hmm. and they were all over the place. These parks that I used to run in and cross it would be just mostly suburban white. Uh, people now is full of people from India. Like I thought that was great. And also people were like, whoa, whoa, our community has changed. I don't like change. To me, I thought this was a progress. This yeah. is progressive. This is great. There's more people, different people. There's more Indian restaurants and the more other global yeah. cultural things in a, in, a, in a community that used to be pretty um, homogeneous, right? Um, and so uh, uh, so anyway, I think that is a, is a positive thing when communities are more global. And hopefully this this coronavirus doesn't affect communities where they become less global. I right. guess it's kind of my, that would be sad for me. Yeah, so absolutely. others may celebrate that, but I wouldn't definitely not celebrate that. Yeah. So, all right, this last section, uh, this is an everyday matter. Everybody's yeah. been dealing with this. <laughs> Everyone has either thought about it themselves or probably had it brought up. If you haven't been thinking about it, it was probably brought up, uh, by another person because as soon as you are working from home, you have this question in your mind. Should I bother getting dressed the way I would to go out if I'm not going out? Uh, and I asked you before we started, because I, I, I know you well enough to have presumed that it would be much easier for you to be on the yes side of this equation. And so I, I went ahead and uh, was preparing my mind for the no side of this equation, and I will, uh, I will open and show that I have creds for this uh, with, a, with a story. Um, my first church that I served in outside of my home church, uh, first full-time position I had, um, at this time, I have a few uh, heroes of various kinds, and uh, Rich Mullins is a long-standing one. Rich Mullins also, uh, the Jesus Movement, uh, very strong for him. Uh, anybody, you know, uh, I'm thankful for, for these because, you know, you and I are, are too young to have experienced the Jesus movement directly, yeah. but mm-hmm. kind of second generation influence in some ways, so. which is really neat uh, that uh, to show that we all the decisions that we make are, are impactful to mm-hmm. others mm-hmm. Um, around us, even having never met uh, Rich Mullins personally, but to, to meet Dr. Cable, there is a vibe. There is a whole uh, kind of attitude uh about that movement, and it is a very kind of um, not buttoned up sort of movement, a very free flowing. Uh, so, so for me, this kind of manifested itself in in just sort of a off the cuff honesty is the way I resonated with it. Being less attached to material things, sure, are major emphases for me early on trying to to grow in that way. Thinking about you know the rich young ruler and these uh, stories uh, that we run into in the Gospels, and I um, I would sometimes walk around uh, the church, and, and my office uh, at Third Baptist Church, Marion, Illinois, was on the second floor uh, up, up above on the, the Christian Life Center side, so the gym, and then my office had a window that looked down, and nobody else was up there. Um, so, I mean, I'd take my shoes off, walk around. I, I ended up sometimes just walking the whole building, you know, no shoes, which is a, sort of like a telltale sign of some of the, you know, a, a lot of Jesus movement sort of stuff, you know. That there, and, and, you know, you have these things in the Bible that, who knows if we're even resonating with this, but it's like taking off your shoes, you're on holy ground, and sure. something that there's sort of like a, a holy ambiance about having yeah, your shoes sure. off. But uh, a new pastor came in, 
And I remember the first day I walked into his office and didn't have shoes on, and I could tell. You've crossed he, the line. He had a sense that I had just slapped him in the face. Yeah, sure. <laughs> he was not into this yeah. at all. Yeah. And, um, and you know, there are always varying degrees. Some people might just say, hey, where are your shoes? But no, he was just, he didn't say a word. He was just, he just kept looking and he kept trying to just figure out what was going on here, you know? Um, and so uh, this, the, the element of it, uh, I, I can understand. Uh, but tell me, what, what is your first salvo of why getting dressed? Uh, oh. and, and make sure you go into too. Apparently, this has been discussed at your house. Is yeah, that right? yeah. So, uh, um, which is funny. And in this article, it's the the woman who argues for dressing up, and the man dress, argues for the dressing yeah, down. Where did this article come from? Wall Street Journal. Okay. Yeah, it's like the, uh, it's the art, section, like right? the life. Yeah, life and style section. Um, and I think it's a very appropriate question because I I I, I vibe with the productivity um, mm-hmm. term there. I. I know personally, um, I feel more productive if I'm dressed a certain way than if I'm not. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there's a there's a certain uh, flair about me that's gotten around amongst people in our church because um, I made this known that I don't ever put on like comfortable clothes until I get ready for bed. Uh-huh. I'm ready to go to bed. Right. Um, and I know some people they get home from work, it's pajamas, uh-huh. it's sweatpants immediately. Uh, I'm not that way. Um, I don't move to that level until I'm about to slide in the bed. Right? That's mm-hmm. just kind of my my mantra. And, the reason, and I've argued that, number one, I feel like I can be more productive even in those hours after work if I'm dressed a certain way than I'm not. Well, I'm already going to say that you've taken one argument away from me because a lot of people do what you're talking about. Yeah, sure. That, you know, they'll go to work and wear uncomfortable clothes, say, from 9 to 5, but as soon as they get home, we'll change immediately oh, into yeah, something yeah. much more comfortable. Okay? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, um, to, to, yeah, so, I, and, and really, my kind of, like, style of, of being, I think is probably proper, is I am constantly... Um, you know, cleaning up, cook like I cook most of the meals. I'm not saying this to dog my wife; she, like, she would affirm this. I cook most of the meals. That's something I enjoy doing, uh, and I typically put the kids to bed upstairs. Okay. Uh, I feel like if I were to put comfortable clothes on and sit on the clouds, my ability to move from that level to then move back to productive level is a difficult jump for me. Okay. So if I can stay in the same uniform, uh-huh. it helps me to stay productive, um, and so. There are some people who are able to be productive even if, if their clothes are comfortable, and I find that great. I just I don't I, I don't have that ability. You don't resonate with and that. I don't sure. resonate with that. So uh, for me, um, but I, I would agree. Even I remember Doctor York said this once. Uh, I wasn't in his preaching class, but I someone else had said it, and I believe in the same philosophy that typically, even in a preaching standpoint, uh, he made his 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 philosophy was you preach better when you're wearing like. Dress, dress your clothes so that you feel more confident in a sense. And I agree with that philosophy. <laughs> and so, but yeah, so this is probably where the, where the argument kind of falls off because it is, it's more emotional feel, right? It's not actual yeah. like real things. But, uh, and so I think this is true. Since I've been a pastor uh, and since even when I was in college or in high school, I have never worn jeans to church. Wow. Not once. Wow. Uh, refused to wear jeans to church and still have never worn jeans to church and uh, would never wear a t-shirt to church and also and and it's changed right like Denton who's a pastor here and Robert who's a pastor here they have no problems wearing their shirt untucked well and that's one thing that I was going to say this puts you out of step with probably yeah 75% if not more of church planners in our day oh yeah probably saying it's time to bring out the jeans, everybody. Yeah, and and I agree with Dr. Mueller said this in a quote once that, uh, and if you don't know Dr. Mueller, I know we talked about him earlier, but I don't think anyone's seen him not in a suit. Yeah. Right. Um, and uh, he 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 made a point. I agree with it. Like t- too many people put too much energy and thought on how they're dressed and how that affects their church and their ministry, how people respond to them. They, what they want is they want a person, what people need really is someone who will preach the gospel faithfully regardless of what they wear. I I agree with that. And so um, in my mind, I bring Sunday into the same kind of mindset as even the rest of the week. 
if I if I dress a certain way, meaning I dress something differently than I would dress at home, then there's a certain mindset and heart level that I'm bringing into the into the service. Instead of, and I would argue, I, and I I just tell guys this: there's a certain mindset that you're bringing to church when you roll out of bed and you roll into church, right? I mean, there's a certain maybe not a direct or perfect. But I think a general principle, but it could be in Proverbs maybe, mm-hmm. what you look like on Sunday may represent your heart to a general say. That's not always true, but if you're rolling out of bed and you had just woken up and you're like, oh, I got to get to church, it's probably going to affect somewhat the way that you worship. Uh, and so I, I kind of, that's kind of my mindset. It's like, yeah. well, dressing up and wearing something different, uh, that wearing a suit or a sports jacket, shows a sense of reverence and honor. And that's the kind of, Maybe uh, that's what I want to re- reflect, I guess, when I, as a as a pastor when I come to church and stuff like that. So, but that that again, that's not a moral issue. Sure. I'm not presenting any moral sure. judgment here. Yeah. But um, uh, so I mean, even today, like, look, I mean, I uh, like, well, I'm gonna go to the church, so I'm gonna wear pants and I'm gonna wear a button-up shirt right. and I'm gonna like. You know, that's just kind of my my flair and the way this that I do things. Well because yeah. I'm in jeans and uh, I don't know what kind of shirt you call this. This is a part of this for me is I don't I don't know anything about clothes so I can't even <laughs> describe. I can tell you it's not a dress shirt. No, it's not a dress shirt. Um, and so there is an, a whole other uh, other side of this and I had not intended. You've provoked me. This is good. I, I was not as much provoked. Um so, so John the Baptist is a great sample of yeah. just the entire other side of this. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. Is, yeah. Look, I have interchange from the Spirit. And so not it's not that I just rolled out of bed. I've been up for three hours. I'm not using any of those three hours <laughs> That's right. to mess with my outer appearance because I don't care about my outer yeah. appearance. It's not about the outer appearance. Right. Um, and so there is just as much to be said for the inner discipline and uh, what that can do. Now, here's the thing, though. The point of this article, first of all, was not terribly spiritual either no, way. No, no, no. Um, I don't know a lot of people who would show up, you know, with their hair sticking out the wrong direction uh, and wearing, you know, a pair of cut-off uh, jeans and a, and a white T-shirt who have spent three hours in prayer, and that's right. why they didn't shower that morning. <laughs> that's right. Uh, that's usually not the case among us less disciplined. Yeah, there's probably Westerners. exceptions to that rule, but most of the time, right. yeah. Um, and, and that's what's fascinating and why uh, I hope that some form, I think we need some form of the Jesus movement because yeah, uh, sure. Rich Mullins did represent that, this sort of no-frills attitude and uh, literally uh, his showering practices were not great. It's just, uh, <laughs> and, and there was this whole philosophy, and there's a whole philosophy behind the Jesus movement that, that look, Jesus came to identify with the poor. Yeah. The poor don't have... 30 changes of clothes, no, no. nice shirts, right. you know, and right. there, there was, uh, and, and there has been among some artists that the, the white t-shirt uh, with, you know, uh, a pair of jeans or, uh, or shorts or whatever look that is a simple look because you're not trying to put on airs as right. if uh, right. anybody that showed up at the church ought to be able to yeah. identify with you. If you are going to preach about a Jesus who came and identified with the lowest of the low. Um, but in terms of working every day, uh, the only thing that I can really say about this opportunity is that this is hopefully and with prayer the only time in our lives we're going to have the opportunity to work yeah. and do every bit of our work, anything that we do, in any clothes that we feel like wearing. Uh, I, I hope and pray that that is true, uh, that we don't have in another 5, 10, 15, 20 years, a situation like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this opportunity is not going to come around too often. Anybody out there who is uh, looking for an opportunity to work in whatever you've got, as long as, uh, I think as long as you're not a distraction to other people, that's that's a concern about this. You know, we're n- none of us are individuals just, in, th- th- this is just about us. I mean, clothes themselves are as much about other people as sure. they are about sure. us. Sure. So you don't want to be a distraction right. uh, to right. other right. people. But uh, this is an opportunity to 
be comfortable in what you and, and you know a lot yeah. of days just uh, frankly uh, if I'm at home with my boys for a whole day it's day off I will wear you know clothes that I work out in because they're comfortable and and there is something to be said that I could uh, you know if we're walking across the parking lot to go over to the church building I could take off running with them because I'm wearing yeah you know uh, yeah tennis shoes and uh, squishy pants and uh, you know uh, one of my yeah workout shirts whereas the big probably the only area where you and I would be at a significant disagreement and kind of daily practice that I couldn't go along with I kind of hate dress shoes I think they're generally Uh, not functional oh I have many Uh, and and man (laughs) I don't care I just I don't care what they look like but I can't stand it if they hurt you not only to walk in them but even like I want to be if I need to take off and run and you know catch something that's falling this is kind of a man (laughs) thing I guess like I want to be ready Right. And those stinking dress shoes, man, they don't do the job as far as the functionality leaves a lot to be desired yeah. in some of those things. And, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot to, uh, like you, if you came to my house, unless I had just cut the grass or I just like went walking with the, the family, not even that sometimes, but rarely will you ever see me in like sweatpants. I don't own a pair of pajama pants. Mm-hmm. No, like the you ones, don't own a pair no, of pajama pants? No, I, I wouldn't wear them if I had them. <laughs> Um, I, uh, I do have, I do have running shorts, but I wear those for the particular utility that they're made for. I don't wear them for lounging. Uh, so, yeah, so I, that, that's like, there's a certain like flair about that. Um, and I think here, here's where there's a, there's a few reasons why. Number one, Americans as a, as a collective group are more casual in their dress than other nations, right? If you go to... If you went to, like, even if you went to Middle Eastern world, like, you went to, like, a city in the Middle East, like, Beirut or, uh, I would probably even Tel Aviv or Istanbul, most men are going to be wearing black, and they're going to be wearing black pants and, a, and a, probably a white shirt. Uh-huh. Very more, like, they're minimalist, and then they're not wearing much of flair, like, but they're, they're very, like, there's a certain gentlemanly, uh, proper, formal dress that yeah, they yeah. wear, right? In America, we don't have this definition. We have business casual, but we we have a lot of layers of different dress, right? Based off personal preference, based off the preference of the group of people or the institution or company you work in. There's just we have a lot more individualism in our dress in other countries. Mm-hmm. I spent a year a year in Europe, right? My, most of my dress comes from living there. But even though it started when I went to a private school and had to wear dress pants and dress mm-hmm. shirts, and so like throughout my history as a growing up. I've always been in more situations where I had to dress up uh-huh. than dress down, yeah, right? Sure. So that's kind of created like somewhat of a, uh, and um, most of, uh, <laughs> just to show you how like I go beyond what is re- required. Go beyond what is written. <laughs> I did take on the Southern mentality of like dressing up for class. How many bow ties do you own? I own, well, I, don't, I own less than some, but I own more than I should. Uh Let's no, see. No, no, I, uh, I own one, two, three. I have a Tennessee one, by the way. Ah, uh, an orange Tennessee one that I've worn before. Uh, one, two, three. I, I probably have more than five. Okay. Um, and so I don't, but I don't wear them as much as I used to because, um, for several reasons, I just don't wear them. Um, they are kind of uncomfortable to tie. Okay. As, a, as a, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, when I, when I did the, then I did seminars for the, my doctor. I wore a suit every every class. Oh sure. But that, that wasn't required. That wasn't required. When you when you went to class. When I went to class for our seminars, I wore a suit every every class, yeah. which Dr. Mueller requires for his doctorate students in the past. Sure. But it's not a requirement anymore. Yeah. Um, but like again, it goes back to the mindset of, sure. well, if if it, if I seem more formal, if I seem more more formal dress, I'll probably do better in class. Mm-hmm. That's really the mindset. And I don't want to, I don't try to push that on other people the best I can. My wife, on the other hand, this is not her mentality. Uh, and I don't force this on her, but she, w- with a new baby, I mean, I wouldn't probably want to dress up with like some cute dress or cute outfit every, if I'm having to like take care of an infant and having to feed an infant. So, uh, but in our home, you'll, you'll notice like my wife is, got f- more casual clothes on and and because she's sitting and feeding the baby where I'm wearing this and mm-hmm. cooking and stuff so we have kind of this you know yin and yang going on yeah. in the house and 
I'm just I'm the male and she's the female, and I think that's just the change there. But uh, that is really kind of my my philosophy and what I uh, kind of am actually known for. When people like oh, yeah. n- identify me, they identify me by my dress. Uh-huh. There's a funny quote that didn't mention when I preached at First Southern. It's the first time I ever preached at First Southern, and and you asked Denton to introduce me. And he even said, like, the first thing you'll notice about Matt is that he, he always dress up, dresses up for, for whatever. Yeah. And that's what he told a bunch of people as, as I'm introduced. And so that has kind of been, like, my tagline. It, it's kind of just kind of stuck. So, yeah. So this is a, it's a great little debate because I am part, very much a part of this, this debate and this feud between even if you're on a video call, what should you wear? And right. my mindset, dress up, wear what you would wear to work, and uh, not wear your, you know, sweatpants and things like that. Right. So. Mm. All right. Everybody, you can make your own decision. <laughs> uh, you know I'll judge you. That's right. And yeah. I'll say this. I'll make this as a, make my last statement on this, as, a, as a, a point of weakness to this, it does make you a snob. I think it's hard not to be somewhat of a snob when you – think people should dress up, right. you know, it makes you, it's not, it makes you a little bit too, um, what's the word? It makes you uh, uh, maybe too self, uh, self-aware or self-evolved where you're like, oh, I gotta dress up because what will people think? Yeah. That is the weakness here, you know? I mean, you care too much what people think. Sure. I mean, that's somewhat going on on this where the people who aren't, they don't really care what people think, you know? So there's a little bit of the, maybe the heart sinful issue going on with this, uh, I don't know if we were meaning to go this level, but I would be honest and say that there's a little bit of snobbishness that comes out of this oh, that that uh, I'm admitting here publicly that uh, I can come off as a snob when it comes to this. And so that's something I have to watch out for. And in full disclosure, while we're talking about it, I think uh, it is the most healthy for everyone to identify whether they struggle the most with vanity, yep. arrogance, or pride. Yeah. Uh, because I would say the sort of... Uh, off the cuff, I'm the honest one. Attitude comes with a prideful sure. attitude a lot of the time, but I'm the one here trying to be spiritual, not trying to be all dressed up and frilly. Uh, and so there are dangers in all things, uh, and it is healthy just to notice those. I appreciate the the openness, man. That's good stuff. Yeah, I have thought about it. So. Okay, good. <laughs> oh, great. Yeah. So, all right, carry on. In your carry household, on. carry on this debate Carry it on, yeah. And uh, this, this will go with you there. Yeah. So this is all we have. Yeah for Empires of the Future, and next week we may talk a little bit about The Last Dance, maybe Michael Jordan, or maybe we'll wait in the summer, but we're looking forward to talking about the Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls and all that type of stuff. Right, so, it is a good mm-hmm. thing that's come out uh, during this time period. So uh, we will talk about it if you were wondering. So uh, we'll see you next week. All right, Empires all right. of the Future available on uh, YouTube and Podbean as well as on iTunes. And uh, so... Just to mention this before we get off, um, on Monday, we have been invited. This is our first invite. We've been invited to join someone else's podcast. Uh, Northwoods Church here in Evansville has a podcast, and they're asking us to discuss what is Calvinism, I believe is the... Calvinism in the Southern Baptist Convention, yeah, I think is kind of the title. Yeah, so... We, we told them, though, we must have questions, <laughs> which I think he just sent them while we're doing this. Oh, and, uh, and so if you want to listen to us, I don't know when they get to, like actually publish those, mm-hmm. but uh, you can look. F- week or two. Yeah, you can look for the Northwoods' podcast. We'll be on there. So, all right. We will see you next week. Bye.